0: And that roused my curiosity. The first woman ever um, to die in the electric chair, and we knew nothing about her. We knew nothing about her name.
1: Hello and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I'm so excited to be joined by Marley Wasserman, author of The Murderous Must Die.
0: But to be honest with you, I'm having much more fun writing historical fiction than I would have um, writing uh, straight history.
1: Marley Wasserman writes historical crime fiction. Her debut novel, The Murderess Must Die, tells the story of Martha Place, the first woman to die in the electric chair. Before she turned to novels, Marley ran a university press specializing in nonfiction books in the social sciences and humanities. When she is not writing, Marley sketches and travels. Topping her bucket list is a visit to each of the United States' 62 national parks. She has visited 39 to date. Well, I'd like to start with Martha Place. Um, Could you tell us who is Martha Place and how did you first learn about her story?
0: Martha Place is the first woman ever executed in the electric chair for murder in, I like to say the United States, but actually probably the world. Uh, And her name was certainly not known by me. I don't think known by many people. Um, She allegedly murdered her stepdaughter in uh, Brooklyn in 1898 uh, and then was executed a year later. The way I learned about her was that I was actually working on another historic novel which centers around the Windsor Hotel fire in Manhattan in 1899 and that fire took place on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 1899. So when I was looking through the old newspapers to try and find information on the fire, what I found was a lot of sort of human interest stories leading up to Martha Place's execution. There was a lot of chatter uh, in the newspapers about was the first woman ever To be electrocuted, really, you know, were they going to go through with it? Were they going to pull the switch? What was the morality around executing a woman? So while I was reading in one column about the Windsor fire, which was the topic on my mind, I would also see in another column um, a story about Martha Place, sometimes cartoons about her. Uh, drawings about her waiting in Sing Sing to be electrocuted, and that roused my curiosity. The first woman ever um, to die in the electric chair, and we knew nothing about her. We knew nothing about her name. Uh, We know the name Ethel Rosenberg. Uh, We know that uh, Mary Surratt was hung uh, in connection with the Lincoln assassination. But we really hadn't heard Martha Place, so I got very curious, started to research her, and realized this was food for a novel.
1: And what did you learn about Martha through, you know, as you delved in into some of the research? And and I'm curious, especially what you learned versus how she was portrayed in those cartoons and in, in the media.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, what hit me, and of course now I'm sitting here in you know the year 2021 when we have heightened sensitivities, but what hit me was how she was portrayed as a villain, uh, and she was never interviewed, so we never heard her story. We never heard her uh, her lawyers. That's a whole. Another matter how many lawyers we heard but we never heard her lawyers talk about her uh, and I couldn't quite believe that she was as heinous as the news reports portrayed her so that's when I started to research her as carefully as I could there's really very very little information on her early years and uh For me, the question was, how did someone who seemed to lead a fairly normal life, um, you know, not the kind of life you or I might want to lead, but a normal life, how did she suddenly uh, lose it and kill or allegedly kill her stepdaughter? She was poor. She was uneducated. She lived in a household with parents who, by today's standards, would be called abusive. But there was nothing that would lead, in my judgment, to a trigger, something that would turn her into a vicious murderer. Uh, so i that's when my sort of novelist imagination had a kick in. What was it that, uh, that set her off? Uh, and... For the most part, I stayed true to the historic record, such as the record was, but I had to fill in trying to imagine the motivations uh, at different points in her life, and certainly the motivation leading up to her um, attack on her uh, stepdaughter, and she also attacked her husband with less success, but she did try and kill her husband as well as her stepdaughter.
1: Well, that that leads me to a couple of questions. You talked about your imagination, so I'm curious how what was your process like of turning the research into a novel, a fictional novel, uh, and then also, and maybe we can go into this a little bit later. But you know, you come from a background of nonfiction, so what what made you decide to actually make this into a fiction novel?
0: Uh, well, let's start with. Um... Non, the nonfiction component of it. As I read historical novelists and think about historical novel writing, it seems to me that there are two different kinds, and I'm just going to tell you the different ends of the spectrum, but of course there's a lot in between. There are many writers of historical fiction who use history as the background for creating a story. Um, the story takes place in a particular time against a backdrop, and they imagine almost all of their characters. At the other end of the spectrum is the way I tend to write. I start with a historical event or a historical situation, and I follow that very closely. Uh, whenever facts are known, I stay as true as I can to the facts. But what I look for is those gaps. And that to me is where the opportunities lie, where there's potential for creativity. So when I was researching Martha Pace, Martha Place, I found one gap after another. Um, and it was those gaps that uh, really made me stop and think. Uh, and made me try and figure out how to connect A to B. So, for example, um, we learn through the historical record that she was a seamstress, she was a dressmaker, but no one ever talked about the skills that are needed to be a dressmaker. There was the assumption that this murderess was a stupid woman, and I think that's anything but the case. To be a dressmaker, well, I can't be a dressmaker. I doubt you, Colin, could be a dressmaker. It requires um, all sorts of skills and not only sewing skills, but selling skills and business skills. So that's one of the areas where I tried to imagine that this woman was more than the reporters made her out to be. Um, Another Uh, gap in the literature was that she uh, put her son up for adoption when she simply was so impoverished that she couldn't afford to even feed him. Again, that's all, what I just said is all you knew, all that was recorded by reporters. So I tried to imagine what were the actual circumstances surrounding a woman who was, who had, Dressmaking skills, but who was so poor that she couldn't feed her child? And also, I had to try and research, and this was not easy. What is the process of putting, a, or what was the process of putting a child up for adoption? In uh, oh, let's see, it was about eighteen ninety or so that she did that. So again, I imagine that she did that through. Uh, an in, informal church system. So, as a novelist, what I was looking for was not to change the facts, but to fill in the gaps um, between between the known facts.
1: Well, I think you've articulated the craft of historical fiction very well there for us. Um, I wonder, in filling in those gaps about Martha Place, First, what do you think is the the importance of giving Martha Place a new voice? And also, what are the risks of perhaps misrepresenting or misconstruing what may have been, you know, lost in history?
0: Right. So one of the challenges that I faced, and I didn't realize this in the beginning, but I did as I moved along, was that I was portraying the villain or the alleged villain. And I was portraying her, uh, I wouldn't say, well, we can discuss this. I wouldn't say sympathetically, but I would say uh, with greater understanding than the reporters had done. And as I continued in my writing, I realized that I perhaps was not being fair to the victim. Uh, There's a historian named Hallie, Uh, Rubenfeld, who wrote a wonderful book called The Five, which is about uh, Jack the Ripper's um, victims. And uh, she's very active, the author is, in commenting on the craft of uh, history and historical fiction. And she has reminded many of us to pay less attention to the villains and more attention to the victims. So halfway through, literally halfway through the novel, I thought, well, you know, I'm really not saying much here about the uh, stepdaughter, Ida Place. And so I began to research Ida Place, uh, the victim, as well as the villain. And what I found about her was that she, too, had lost a number of siblings, uh, A a number of her siblings had died, just as her stepmother, Martha Place, had uh, experienced the loss of a number of uh, siblings uh, and parents as well. So both women, both the young teenage victim and the middle-aged villain, had sort of experienced similar um, episodes in their lives. So at that point, uh, although I have to admit I was never particularly sympathetic with this teenage daughter who seemed to me a little twerpy, um, but <laughs> I tried to control my first impressions and tried to imagine what life was her life for her was like as well. So to get back to your question, I did I was conscious of possibly misrepresenting. Martha Place, making her a little more understandable uh, than perhaps she deserved. Um, but I was willing to risk that, especially once I balanced it out a bit with uh, a better portrait of her her stepdaughter. Uh, I will never know for sure, nor will historians, if Martha Place was absolutely, truly beyond any um, doubt guilty, Uh, but I do think that I've represented a little better than the reporters of the era, what could have led her to this breakdown, Um, and I was willing to take those chances in my portrayal of her.
1: Well, you brought up... um... The media's coverage of her and, and I'm curious what are your thoughts about how the media covered Martha Place compared to how our media coverage is today and obviously I don't want you to get uh, too deep into the, the, the weeds on that but do you think um, the media coverage has improved in any way do you think it, it would have uh, the, the coverage would be different if this event happened now.
0: Oh, there's absolutely no question. Even though, you know, we all make fun of the media and we all, you know, question if what we're getting is absolutely accurate, uh, what we see now is a 100 times better than before. Uh, Martha Place uh, supposedly killed her stepdaughter during the era of yellow journalism, when newspapers, especially those in New York, were fighting for sensationalism fighting with each other to get the most sensational story possible. And it was against that backdrop that reporters tried to capture what was happening. So uh, there was really no check on their purple prose, their one-sided stories. Also, they had no byline. So um, I would have liked to have been able to research some of the reporters, but we don't even know who they were. Uh, and there was no fact-checking, there was no proofreader. Um, In my historical note at the back of the book, I mentioned the fact that I had trouble even finding the correct spelling for some of the names. Um, A reporter in one paper would spell Ridgeway one way, a reporter in another paper would spell it another way. Uh, The reporting was, uh, you know, I would say it verged on irresponsible. Uh, and in particular, kind of calling, talking about a woman's appearance in very negative terms, inferring something about her intelligence without any real proof. Uh, it was it was pretty despicable reporting, I would say, even for yellow journalism. So today, I think we have somewhat higher standards. Um, we're still not where we should be. The very fast news cycle, um, the very first news cycle, requires, uh, you know, so that there will be no fact checking. Um, but it's still a hundred times, a hundred times better.
1: Well, it's very interesting what that what that means for you or for any of us researching history. It kind of puts an extra level of of effort that has to go into it because of that yellow journalism that you brought up. So can you talk about what that process was like for you at getting to some sort of objective truth? And, And also, I'm curious, beyond the media reports, what other historical sources were you able to rely on?
0: Yeah, so I can go back now to one of your earlier questions about my previous life, when I was uh, a publisher and an editor uh, working in nonfiction, mainly the social sciences. I work with a lot of sociologists, anthropologists, historians. So although I'm not a scholar, I was familiar with the process of research uh, and I'm also married to a historian. That helps a little as well, so I um, I checked uh, bibliographies of books on the era. I read a lot on uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who appears toward the end of my book. He's the governor of New York. He's the guy that the lawyers appeal to for clemency, and he denies clemency. I was able to read most of the biographies uh, about TR, and uh, those sent me to scholarly articles about TR, and there's a wonderful website called JSTOR that collects uh, articles by scholars Uh, So I was able to read uh, around the time uh, stories about the era. I did some reading on the uh, police force uh, in the era. I did a lot of, there are a lot of websites, as you probably know, about um, fashion, uh, even websites about police uniforms. Um, So you, you know, one, it's what I call a snowballing technique where One thing leads to another, as though you rolled a snowball down a hill, Uh, an analogy that might make sense in the middle of the winter. Uh, And these uh, sources allowed me to also fill in some of the gaps. I use my imagination for some of the gaps and historical sources for the other. The real problem, and I'm sure you've discussed this with other novelists, is not doing uh, an information dump. And I was most tempted to do that uh, when I discussed how Martha Place's eminent execution, imminent execution, uh, had the country divided with half of the sort of educated you know, conversant people, arguing that whatever a woman did, she shouldn't be executed. And the other half arguing that, um, you know, a crime was a crime. And if women were going to be equal, they should be subject to the death penalty as well. So I had probably about 20 pages on the various uh, discussions about that, the clubs. And I had to cut all but one page of that. Uh, But that was the most tempting thing that I wanted. I wanted to put Martha Place's execution in the context of discussions about uh, suffrage and equal rights. And I really had to censure myself and make sure that I didn't go overboard. But that's an example of both the research I did and the ways I had to control that research.
1: Have you held on to that research and and thought of making it into an academic essay?
0: Yes, I have. Um, But to be honest with you, I'm having much more fun writing historical fiction than I would have um, writing uh, straight history. But I do think what I'd really like to do is suggest that topic to a historian who could do even more with it um, than I could. Just as today we sit around discussing politics or um, some of the um, uh, murders of minorities that have taken place lately. Uh, In 1899, people sat around having very impassioned conversations about the execution of the first woman ever.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit more about the fiction side of things. Um, Your story is written in, in a very conversational tone and you use this um, first-person point of view for multiple characters. Can you talk about that decision to use that style of writing, and also how difficult was it for you to get into the mind of each one of these characters?
0: Yes. So I would say that um, what you've just put your finger on is probably the most characteristic aspect of my writing style for this particular book. I actually tried it in third person. I started out that way, and it just didn't feel right. Um, I felt, especially with Martha Place, that I didn't want to filter, a filter of a narrator, in effect, between what she was thinking, what she was saying, and what, what was on the page. Uh, with first person, I was able to try to imagine her life and let her talk directly to the reader. Uh, What I think is a little more surprising for readers is not so much that I put Martha Place in the first person as that I put all the secondary characters in the first person as well. When I started writing, I made a decision that although this wasn't going to be a treatise on capital punishment, that I did want to make the point that capital punishment is sort of like a concentric circle. At the center, of course, is the criminal who's about to be executed. But around that person is other people whose lives are affected very seriously. I can't say as much as the villain, but certainly deeply affected. Um, some of those affected people, is pretty obvious, they would be a husband, a son, um, a brother, uh, and I have all those people in the book. But there's another layer of people, people who are not well known, the, um, the many policemen, who arrested her, uh, the many policemen who testified against her, the uh, matrons who guarded her, the wardens who jailed her, all of these people, we can't just assume that they said, ah, you know, another victim, another villain to lock up. Um, If they were, in day-to-day contact with a woman who was about to be electrocuted, it was going to affect them. And so I wanted them to be in the first person as well, to try and make that point that this was a whole sort of world of people who were affected. Now, you know, it was somewhat easier for me to imagine what it might be like for the wife of the warden, for example, to be spending time with Martha Place, somewhat easier for me to do that than to imagine what it was like for a policeman to have arrested her. Uh, but I did try as best I could to um, take the information that uh, it was in the inf- info dump that I discarded uh, about what it about the feeling about killing a woman, and put that into the minds of some of the policemen, the other people in the legal and justice biz, uh, the various lawyers who attempted to represent Martha Place, Uh, this couldn't have been easy for them either. Uh, So, you know, I think readers have to switch from character to character that is true and it maybe it puts a little bit of an extra burden on the reader but I did it very intentionally in the hope of showing how this uh, you know like pebbles dropping in the water how the waves of a uh, execution affect uh, concentric circles of
1: people. Did you get any? I mean what was the the editing process like uh did you get some criticism from beta readers editors for that decision did you ha- kind of have to work through that and how long did it you know take you to achieve that final tone that you wanted to to get to
0: Yes um I did have several what we call beta readers um intelligent people who had no vested interest in the manuscript and I think uh It wasn't so much the first person that came up, um, but I did have a number of people who said they had trouble keeping track of so many characters, and there are indeed a lot of characters in this book. Uh, So believe it or not, I did revise, and I eliminated (laughs) some of the characters. Some of them I just uh, mentioned by their profession rather than name, because once you have a name, it sort of signals to the reader that maybe this person is important. Um, For some readers, I still have too many characters. Uh, I'm aware of that. I think that if I had to go back and do it again, I would still make that point because it relates to what I said earlier. The number of people who are involved in a case like this, um, whose lives are affected by a case like this, is, is really stunning. Uh, and, and I think that that does come through. I would hope that it becomes clear to readers that some characters are more important than others. I mean, there were about six policemen not all of them are important, but Martha Place, uh, obviously. Her various lawyers, um, obviously. Um, the victim, um, you know, there are some characters who you will read, whose voices you will hear again and again. And I do think those carry the, the spine of the story through.
1: Well, the, the novel is is getting overwhelmingly positive reviews. How does that feel for you?
0: Well, it feels wonderful because this is my first novel. Uh, as we've just discussed, I was a academic book publisher for a long time. But as you can imagine, that involves writing more memos and reports and maybe occasional uh, jacket copy description than it does creating a novel. Um, the last time I had written anything I would call fiction was third grade. So uh, many decades after third grade, I had to uh, kind of learn a new craft. Uh, and I'm still learning this new craft uh, because I wrote during Zoom, during uh, COVID. I was relying on Zoom and on virtual conventions. A lot of tutorials, a lot of sharing of information online, uh, and it does feel good that uh, a number of people do recognize uh, that I've sort of brought alive uh, a hidden story. In the process, I've learned a lot that's going to um, influence my future writing. This is my first novel. Uh, But I do expect to write more. One of the interesting things about turning to novel writing at this point in my life uh, as my second career is that, as you know, Colin, there are communities of novel writers, historical novel writers, uh, in particular throughout the world. And these folks are very gracious about sharing information about helping each other, about critiquing each other. So I've kind of stepped with baby steps into a wonderful new community, and I welcome them, and I hope they welcome me.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of interconnected, interconnectedness Um Tell me about um, what what specifically are you working on next, or what can you tell us about that?
0: So there are actually two books, and they're both set in the same general historic time period around the turn of the century, and by that I mean around the year 1900. So Martha Place uh, was executed in 1899. Uh, But the other books I'm doing, one, um, as I mentioned earlier in the Teddy Roosevelt connection, it's about the uh, Windsor Hotel fire. So the Windsor Hotel in New York was one of the most luxurious, biggest, best known, most elegant hotels of its era. Uh, and until um, St. Patrick's Day, 1899, when it burned to the ground uh, in a horrible conflagration. What is dramatic about that fire is not just the destruction of the building, but the number of people who died. Uh, something like 50 women jumped from upper stories. This was about 10 years uh, before the Triangle Shirt Fire factory, but even in around 1900, uh, fires were rampant. Everyone feared fires; they were they were very common. But this particular fire was particularly destructive. So I'm looking at some of the people who either escaped the fire or died in the fire, and uh, to cut to the chase. The coroner found that the fire was the result of accidents, but I'm trying to imagine a different scenario. So that's one one book. The other book I'm writing is on uh, the Panama Canal. So I change scenes, keep approximately the same era, and I look at the four days when Teddy Roosevelt went to the Panama Canal to check his great creation, and that episode is historically significant because, believe it or not, it was the first time a sitting president ever left the United States. And I'm imagining a a few assassination attempts on Roosevelt's life in that era. One thing I should say that connects uh, the the Panama Canal book with the Martha Place book is that in both cases you know the outcome. In the Martha Place book, um, uh, The Murderous Must Die, uh, we know from the beginning, I think I admitted it on page one, that Martha Place was going to die in the electric chair. In the Panama Canal book, where I'm imagining assassination attempts, we know that Teddy Roosevelt was never assassinated. So with both of these books, um, it... It was a challenge from a writer's point of view to sustain suspense, sustain interest when the uh, outcome is known. And that's one of my challenges that I set for myself.
1: Well, it sounds like you've carved out a little knack for yourself. and. (laughs) I definitely want to congratulate you on on the success of your your first novel, and, and um, it looks like we've got more to look forward uh, from you. Well, I've been talking with Marley Wasserman, author of "The Murderous Must Die." Marley, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you, Callan.